Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point with me, Li Xin, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. Honduras established diplomatic ties with China on Sunday, right after breaking off so-called diplomatic relations with the Taiwan authorities. According to the joint communique between the two countries, the government of the Republic of Honduras recognizes that there is only one China in the world. The government of the People's Republic of China is the sole legal government representing the whole China, and Taiwan is an inalienable part of China's territory. So what is the significance of this development and uh, what implications will this have on China-U.S. ties? I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Aina Tangen, Senior Fellow of Taihe Institute, a think tank, and from Beijing by Liu Baocheng, Dean of the Center for International Business Ethics at the University of International Business and Economics. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. Aina, let me go to you first. Now, the decision by Honduras reduces the number of countries that uh, diplomatically recognize Taiwan to only 13. And Chinese Foreign Minister Ching Gang said today that uh, that marks a brand new start for China-Honduras ties. So what has prompted the Honduran authorities to make this important shift? Well, contrary to what you hear a lot in the popular press, um, what it was was an internal decision by Honduras. Uh, there was a couple of factors. One, uh, there was a sense by the opposition who came into power uh, that Taiwan had been supporting the previous administration. Basically, getting involved in the internal affairs of other countries does not work, and Taiwan is learning this firsthand. But more importantly, it is just about economics. This, these are very tough times. You know, Honduras has seen five other countries who have left, uh, you know, broken off relations with Taiwan and fully uh, joined the Chinese camp, and they have been doing well. They've joined Belt and Road Initiative. They've had uh, tremendous amounts of increases in their trade, and they're also looking forward towards uh, more investment and being part of the Belt and Road Initiative. There's this feeling that um, smaller countries need to be part of larger trade groups in order to survive. Now, 182 countries in the world um, have uh, diplomatic ties with the People's Republic of China, and they're officially recognizing the one China principle. That is the absolute uh, majority of countries in the world. Um, the uh, Honduran president also indicated that her decision is on a tweet on social media that her decision is in concert with the nations of the world. Professor Liu, what does it mean for Taiwan independence forces or those who are advocating separatist, separatism? Well, actually, ever since uh, 1971, uh, when uh, the People's Republic of China uh, uh, was able to kick uh, the Taiwan regime out of the uh, United Nations. Uh, the space uh, for diplomacy uh, with this island has been dwindling all along. And uh, now I think Honduras has made the right decision to join a bigger family. And uh, by uh, linking with China, it means that they are also linking with a globalization process. And particularly when Anna mentioned the Belt and Road program has benefited those uh, five uh, uh, Latin American and Caribbean countries so much so, so uh, people uh, have their own eyes to see that uh, what are really the true benefits. The so-called uh, democracy and uh, uh, lofty slogans 
uh, do not really feed people's stomach. And uh, Honduras is really now uh, uh, moving forward uh, with their vision and uh, also with their ambition mm. to uh, build uh, their infrastructure to improve people's uh, mm. livelihood and also by narrowing the uh, inequality of income distribution and stabilize their economy and particularly now when they are uh, concentrated more in the agricultural part and China is definitely a biggest buyer uh, along that. So yeah. uh, this is really the wise choice and uh, Taiwan regime is really receiving another slap uh, in that regard and particularly now uh, when the world are really uh, trying to encircle uh, China uh, you know, uh, the Western the world issue. led by the United really States. Very much a breakthrough. Yeah. Well, you know, in the United States, however, although they stress that they still adopt the one China policy, which is not exactly as the one China principle, and they do not recognize Taiwan uh, officially, but you keep hearing about talk of Taiwan on the popular media or mainstream media in the West as if Taiwan is some kind of independent country that has some kind of a quasi official status. Um, do people from these media, Aina, do they know something that we don't? Why does the U.S. de facto go against international consensus? Well, it's actually two different questions. I mean, for a lot of journalists, they have a kind of knee-jerk reaction because uh, their role in a democracy is the fourth estate. They're essential. Uh, they reject uh, the role of the media in a one-party state where it's about information, making sure people know exactly what's going on. So you have that on that side. In terms of the uh, uh, Washington, it's purely, you know, we live in a post-fact, post-hypocritical world. Uh, there was three communiques that were signed between China and the U.S. They could not be more clear on what the state of the relationships were, that there was only one China. They removed Taiwan from the U.N. I, I don't know how much more you could do to, um, to, you know, to declare that there's only one China. But now, uh, due to uh, you know, uh, this sense in the U.S. that it's losing ground to China, they have uh, basically reinvented uh, a new kind of interpretation uh, of these, these three communiques and just say, well, we, we never said this, we never said that, when clearly they did. Mm. Well, it is uh, for certain that China will continue to uh, establish diplomatic relations with the remaining countries in the world that haven't done so. Um, as, as I mentioned of Taiwan, for Taiwan authorities, there are still 13 so-called diplomatic allies and seven of them are located in the Americas. So Professor Liu, do you foresee the trend of reorientation continue in these countries in the year to come? Could uh, Taiwan separatist forces do anything to try to disrupt that process? I don't think so, uh, because the uh, world trend is very clear that the they are looking for pragmatic benefit and, and particularly now when you uh, when the uh, irony is there so the, the United States and many other countries promote uh, democracy. Actually, when we look at democracy around the global landscape, it is really the voluntary choice and free choice of their people, of their government, to join uh, the uh, diplomatic ties uh, with the People's Republic of China. So that's really a part of the democracy. And also that... Uh, but will uh, really also the, also now that you mentioned that, Professor Liu, sorry for interrupting. What will the United States do to prevent this process? To prevent, you know, China from winning 
over more countries diplomatically? Well, uh, I do not think they have any legitimate reason to prevent that um, because it's not only there to sever China's interests, but also to serve, uh, sever their uh, proposed democracy around the world, you know, in terms of freedom and equality uh, in their choices, uh, whether to ally with any other countries. So uh, what they uh, wanted really to contain China and using the uh, Taiwan Island as a sort of a springboard and to create more of the uh, stories to boost the uh, antagonism against China among their allies. And now, actually, uh, many of their allies already see that uh, this is not the way to go. And uh, now the uh, economy of uh, every country is really uh, in a vulnerable situation. And China is uh, there to contribute a lion's share to the global growth and recovery. And uh, now many of the smaller countries, uh, they begin to uh, look outside of the world and they uh, settle their, uh, some of the political disputes and also internal uphe uh, upheavals. And now uh, when people are looking at uh, you know, their houses, are looking at their land uh, and also looking at their, uh, at their future and uh, to team up uh, with China is the way to go because mm. we are able to offer the How, uh, not only infrastructure but yeah. also the largest market on, to work on with China's them. Part, on China's part, Professor Liu, for, sorry for interrupting and please keep it short, mm -hmm. time is really limited. On China's part, what does this mean? What does this move mean for China's determined effort to achieve reunification and use peaceful means to the maximum extent possible? Yes, this is a very important question because uh, the primary choice for China uh, for its uh, unification is uh, through a peaceful means and by more recognition of the uh, one China policy and also the uh, People's Republic uh, is the only legit uh, legitimate government over the entire China uh, is something that is there to win the popular support around the world and also that is also there to give a, a warning to those separatist forces uh, either uh, within the island or outside the island mm -hmm. that uh, you know uh, there is only one alternative All that right. is the unification and that is there to serve the entire China and also serve the future generations of all the Chinese people. All right. Well, finally, Aina, the U.S. Congress voted last week with an overwhelming majority, 404 votes for versus seven votes against, to pass a bill called Taiwan Assurance Implementation Act. It requests the Department of State to regularly review the guidelines for exchanges with Taiwan and also ask the U.S. Secretary of State to identify opportunities to lift any remaining self-imposed limitations on U.S.-Taiwan engagement and articulate a plan to do so. What does that mean, first of all, and how will the Honduran move impact U.S. policy concerning Taiwan? Well, I, I don't think most legislators know where Honduras is, so I don't think that's going to be a problem. Uh, basically, South America has been ignored, uh, which is one of the contributing factors here. But in terms of uh, U.S. policy, it will continue to be very negative towards uh, China, and that means playing up the Taiwan card. 
Um, it, it's not even clear that the U.S. is that interested in Taiwan, except this, this quote, uh, narrative about values. As Taiwan loses countries, I mean, Taiwan started out with 22 countries that were still allied with Taiwan, now down to 13. Uh, that's going to have an effect both in terms of the politics that are coming up and also her coming trip. This will be, you know, seen in Washington as, you know, China's uh, taking advantage of us in our backyard, but will they do something about it? I doubt it. Will the U.S. feel greater pressure to defend Taiwan, go further on this road, to embolden the separatists? Um, they, that is the direction it's going, but right now you're starting to see a, a groundswell of people who are just uh, tired of this, everything is China's fault, uh, when clearly, you know, the banking issue, the, the issue about uh, the $31.5 trillion in debt and a debt ceiling that is not happening while they spend five and a half hours talking about cat videos and children, hmm. um, this, this is not playing well. And oh. America changes. Uh, Washington is not taking care of business, so it's quite possible you're going to see well. a change. But still, the, the voting result says a lot. Anyway, we have to leave it there. Many thanks to Aina Tangen and uh, Professor Liu Baocheng for joining us. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, TikTok in the crosshairs. We'll talk about the undermining clues behind the political show targeting the popular apps. Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. On March 23rd, the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee conducted a five-hour hearing with the CEO of TikTok, Shou Zichou. The hearing came after the Biden administration indicated it may ban the app outright in the U.S. if its Chinese owner refused to sell its stake to an American company. The U.S. lawmakers pressed Chu over data security practices, its impact on, impact on children, and its relationship with the Chinese government. Why is TikTok being targeted by the U.S. government? Has the hearing addressed the concerns properly? And what will be the future of the widely popular app? I'm pleased to be joined from Adelaide, Australia by Simon Lacey, Senior Lecturer of the School of Economics and Public Policy at the University of Adelaide. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. By the way, Simon is also former vice president of Huawei Technology, so always a pleasure to have you on the show. So, as I said, U.S. lawmakers grilled TikTok CEO Mr. Um, Chu, and uh, during the hearing, actually, lawmakers repeatedly cut him off uh, mid-sentence and demanded simplistically yes or no answers. Um, uh, Mr. Chu, in contrast, was portrayed to be of patience even when he was being talked over. So why does it appear that the, these lawmakers have no interest in, in what he had to say? Well, I think like so, so much else in the American political system, this was just an act of sort of political theater where you know politicians line up to get their faces on TV and get sound bites of themselves being tough on China so they can use these back in their congressional districts for their own political purposes. Um, I, don't, I don't think it served any other purpose than, than that political theater and, and grandstanding, really. But what, procedural-wise, why is such a hearing necessary? What is the approach of the Biden administration regarding TikTok that is different from the Trump administration? Well, I think, you know, like in many other instances, we're seeing this sort of talismanic invocation of national security 
um, as if, you know, just by using this justification, you know, every course of action or every government intervention becomes covered in a veil of legitimacy. And so, you know, anyone that challenges that or questions that can be painted as, as unpatriotic or subversive. But, you know, I think this is going to do very little to actually strengthen national security and, and even address some of the data privacy or or um, other concerns around the use of social media in the US. And I, I think this is really just going to further inflame tensions with China and, and by doing so, it could actually undermine national security. Um, how helpful do you think this hearing would be to the American public that the Congress people are supposed to inform? And what can we expect from any possible legislation enacted through such a system? Well, I think the hearing was probably inconclusive in really sort of changing people's minds or shaping opinions. I mean, most people in the United States uh, would have already uh, sort of made up their minds about, you know, this supposed threat uh, that China represents. And, and most people or businesses that actually use TikTok uh, or are big supporters of the app and they, they're sort of, um, they've gone out of their way to sort of highlight the, the amazing functionality and opportunities that the app um, provides to them. So I think the hearing may provide some political cover for the Biden administration to do what it wants to do, which is appear um, tough on China. And, and this way it doesn't have to sort of concede that issue to the Republicans and it also doesn't want to look uh, weak. Um, so I think that was really uh, the purpose that it served the, uh, the Biden administration. I'm joined from Beijing, by the way, by uh, Chen Wenxing, Executive Director of the Institute of American Studies of the Chinese Institutes of Contemporary International Relations. Mr. Chen, thank you very much for joining us. So if a ban is put on TikTok, do you think that will really solve America's data privacy problems, which are said to be the concern and the purpose uh, such a hearing would uh, address? I don't think it will uh, solve the um, problem because uh, the U.S. Uh, has have no federal thought uh, on the data security, and uh, if the sale of uh, TikTok uh, to a U.S.-based company, and uh, they we are putting out uh, restrictions on, on the data flows. And, um, and we are imposed now the uh, uh, restrict, new restriction on uh, the data security. And so I, at the sale uh, of the of TikTok, I just uh, changed the company, but it, we are not uh, solved the problem mm. because uh, at the uh, US tech giant, we are not uh, like the US government uh, to regulate uh, the information flow. Yeah. Well, Mr. Chu faced intense questioning about ties to the Chinese government and U.S. lawmakers portrayed uh, the application as a malevolent tool or bad tool used by the Chinese government to track and spy on Americans. We have seen similar stories summon happening with other Chinese tech companies, including Huawei, where you worked as a vice president. So does this mean, do you think the, the feeling is consistent that the U.S. believes or makes the case that every Chinese company, whether state-owned or private, is controlled by the Chinese and Chinese government and thus cannot be trusted at all. Yeah, I mean, look, one of the things that I've learned after almost sort of 20 years of um, working in trade policy is that when you try to sort of understand why a government 
particularly a government is sort of captured by corporate interests as the one in the US does something, you always have to sort of follow the money and, and you do that sort of by asking who benefits from this. So who benefits from a US ban on TikTok? That's obviously going to be TikTok's competitors all of whom are some of the largest US tech companies uh, with their own powerful social media platforms and all have similar practices with regard to data privacy um, to, to TikTok. So this is going to be you know, a short-term win for TikTok's competitors in the US, um, but also a short-term and, and long-term loss for US users of TikTok who've been very vocal in, in highlighting the, the benefits that the platform brings to them. A Chinese law was repeatedly cited as evidence that TikTok <clears throat> will provide data to Chinese government if, request, if requested. Uh, to set the record straight, Mr. Chen, under what circumstances will the Chinese government ask for such cooperation from companies for matters concerning national security? Because we know um, the Chinese national intelligence law does say any organization or citizen should support, assist and cooperate in national intelligence work in accordance with law. Uh, is this a unique China practice or is it a standard practice that's uh, adopted by countries all over the world? I think it's a uh, standard uh, practice uh, conducted by all the countries uh, in the world. And every country uh, has a national interest uh, for the control or not control of, uh, for the managing of the flow of, in the, uh, in the, of the information. Uh, but I, I think it would add uh, protect, protect, uh, protecting uh, the data security and also it will uh, add uh, protecting the national uh, security. I think it's uh, conduct over the world. Uh, it's not uh, just to the Chinese government. Simon, what is your take on this question? You must have been asked similar questions quite often. How do you look at this law and how, uh, in reality, has Huawei dealt with such a provision if uh, it has ever been ap applicable? Yeah, I mean, this was an issue that Huawei faced uh, a lot of scrutiny for um, when, the, when the law first came out. And um, I mean, I remember one of the responses of the company was to actually look at what the equivalent legislation was in other countries. And they found that uh, in countries such as Germany and France, you've actually got identical legislation on the statute books, right? And so, um, and also the US Cloud Act, you know, is, is, is very similar. But, um, you know, I think I think the, the argument that a lot of uh, countries make is that, um, you know, in, in other countries, you've actually got a system of legal redress against um, against sort of government overreach and that, that you know, given the, the Chinese constitutional system and while the, the realities of, of how, um, you know, law and politics works in China, uh, that sort of a defence wouldn't, wouldn't work in China. So, you know, what Tim Cook did um, standing up to uh, an order by the US Justice Department, that just wouldn't fly in China. The reality is, though, that, you know, the Chinese government would never be stupid enough to ask one of its companies to basically ruin their own chances of being commercially viable on a foreign market. So the Chinese government would actually never place one of its companies 
in the position, in the impossible position of handing over data and violating the laws in the countries in which they operate. And, and this was very clear uh, when I was at Huawei, and it's also clear in, in, in the case of TikTok, is the, mm. the Chinese government would just never ask one of its own companies to violate the law in that way in, in the market that's, mm. that they're operating. Well, that leads to my final question, which is an important one. Um, if TikTok is treated this way and companies all over the world are watching, what could be the potential implications on the level of confidence in the in the certainty of investing in the United States, which is considered which is labeled to be a free market based on commercial practices. Simon. Yeah, look, I mean I think I think one thing that you know we should all bear in mind is, is that there are no real sort of innocence in this game, right? So some of the largest US tech companies and their social media platforms have long been banned from the Chinese market, which is also a shame. I think where the US invokes and abuses national security to achieve its aims. You know, China has, has done the same for over a decade now under the mantle of information security and indigenous innovation policies. And so what's happening to TikTok is really just China's own chickens coming home to roost. I think we'd all be much better off if China and the US could again learn to trust each other enough to open their respective markets more to each other's companies and technologies. And that would make, you know, the world a, a better and safer place for everyone. Mm. I think that's really the lesson we should draw well, is that it's really time for the US and China to, to put aside their differences and to start trying to rebuild trust with one another. Well, I have to make a point here because uh, the, the country, the companies that are uh, not operate the international social media companies, for instance, if, the, if uh, these are the ones you were referring to, they chose, they opted not to operate. China instead of being banned in China uh, with a with a broad brush considering that was the case that was certainly the case with Google search yeah. and that was Sergey Brin's decision um, taken on on principle but I mean Facebook and Twitter um, I mean Mark well, let's Zuckerberg not has been let's trying not to get back into China for, yeah. for a long time right? let's, let's so also there is not Let's also not forget the kind of uh, a political environment that China is living in. We are kind of one against many, and uh, you know, if you are trying to have a regime change or color revolution, you do have to take and take extra precaution, isn't it? Anyway, that's a that's a different question, and I do get your point about more trust, more communication, probably having an investment agreement between the two countries. I have to leave it there. Many thanks to Simon Lacey, as always, and Chen Weixing joining us from different parts of the world. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye for now. Dunhuang, situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Love Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on major podcast platforms. Why We Love Dunhuang? You will have your answers.